HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And perhaps you've heard or seen the recent streaming series that skyrocketed in popularity called The Bear, all about food, family, ambition, restaurant work, grinding restaurant work, and Chicago's iconic sandwich, the Italian beef. What is made abundantly clear in that series is that Chicagoans are incredibly passionate about their food. And along with their style of Chicago-style pizza and the hot dogs, um, Italian beef sandwiches are one of the most, but I think I'll say the most, important regional dishes. Truly regional. This regional specialty is little known outside the Midwest, becoming more and more popular, and now, especially thanks to that series. But to me, a Midwesterner by birth, an Italian by marriage, and having lived in Italy for several years, once upon a time, it, it's always remained somewhat of an enigma. I could never figure out what was Italian about the sandwich, other than it was made and popularized by Italian immigrants, but it has endured for almost a century. As a style of food, being Italian, I didn't get it. So I was excited to find out that a food historian, Anthony Buccini, has done some research on the topic, which he presented at the most recent Oxford Food Symposium. And he's here today and ready to shed some light on this delicious mess of a sandwich. Anthony Buccini, who just happens to live in Chicago, is an historical linguist and dialectologist with particular interests in the Germanic, the Germanic Romance and Celtic language families. As a food historian, his interests lie primarily in the Mediterranean and Atlantic world. And he has published on a wide array of topics from prehistorical to contemporary issues. Anthony received a BA from Columbia University and his PhD from Cornell University in Germanic linguistics. He also studied and conducted research as a Fulbright scholar 
at the Catholic University in Leuven, Belgium, and taught for many years at the University of Chicago. His current research focuses on Mediterranean and Atlantic world foodways. He's a two-time winner of the Sophie Coe Prize in Food History and a past recipient of a scholar's grant from the Culinary Historians of New York and is a frequent contributor and presenter at the Oxford Food Symposium. Welcome, Anthony. Uh, hello. Glad to be here. I assume that you've sampled your fair share of Italian beef sandwiches, whether or not they were you were doing research. I don't, you know, I don't have to know that, but I'm sure that that you are quite familiar with this sandwich before and during your research. So let's first talk about the name. I called it an Italian beef sandwich, and that's probably redundant a couple of times, is it not? Um, yeah, I, I'd say that. Uh... The the name of the sandwich um, in the neighborhood where it uh, arose uh, is, is really just beef. Huh. Uh, the, the Italian part uh, it seems uh, uh, unnecessary, mm -hmm. and so most people just uh, always refer to it as as beef. Uh, you want to you want to get a beef? Uh, you feel like having a beef? Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I imagine that when the sandwich started to spread outside of this neighborhood, I live in the Tower Street neighborhood and have for a long time. Ah. Um, uh, that uh, the uh, you know the, it it got uh, the adjective added on uh, and uh, and 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 set uh, in into com common parlance here. Yeah, but, I mean, you had, to, um, you had to differentiate it from, let's say, a sliced beef, you know, yeah, on a roll. Yeah. Um, but first of all, let, let's give me a description of this sandwich for those who aren't familiar with it or you know haven't seen the, the show, which I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people who haven't seen it. But um, talk about what, why this sandwich is so popular. What is this sandwich? Well, at first glance, it just looks like a... Uh, a, uh, a variant of the all-American roast beef sandwich that you can find surely from Maine to Southern California. Um, and, um, you know, it's the, the basic uh, description of it. It's roasted beef sliced and placed in a piece of bread. And so it is a roast beef sandwich uh, mm -hmm. in that sense. And uh, most uh, food writers, uh, there aren't a lot of people who have talked about it much, um, aside from, you know, sort of ranking, ranking beef stands uh, in, in Chicago and Chicago land, and maybe talking about how it's made and such. But no one's really looked at it historically. And the assumption has been that it's just a variant on, on the American roast beef sandwich, one that grew up in, in amongst Italian-Americans in Chicago. Um, uh, and, um, th th you know, it's just assumed that, uh, it was, there were things added to, uh, you know, the basic, uh, notion of, uh, of an American Anglo-American, uh, roast beef, um, uh, recipe, but, um, it's, it really, I, I think conceptually it's a bit, uh, it's rather different. Um, in that, um, the gravy is 
absolutely essential to the dish. Without the gravy, the dish, it's, it's not Italian beef. Mm-hmm. Well, in um, fact, it's not really roast. It's not roast beef. It's, I'm going to say, broasted. It's a, a stewed practically, but, yeah, it's, but it's a big chunk. It's a big chunk of beef and um, the usual, it, it, there, there, are a lot, there are a lot of variations on how to produce it. Um, and but they all come out with a, a, a similar um, taste profile, although that's very much uh, subject to the to the uh, seasonings that one adds. But um, in uh, in for example, uh, a very famous uh, Italian beef place, uh, uh, Al's, which uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll have occasion to uh, mention again later on. Um, when they roast the beef, it's almost covered in uh, liquid. Almost, you know, there are a few inches uh, uh, exposed for, you know, direct uh, dry heat roasting. So uh, it is very much, uh, you know, the, the Italian word, uh, stufato, that's, that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. But one doesn't have to have that much liquid, uh, but, uh, but a lot of liquid, a lot of gravy is essential because the way it's, uh, the, the sandwich is made, um, it 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 it's really always a wet sandwich to some degree. Kind of a mess of a sandwich, as I said earlier. It's it's a messy sandwich. In indeed, in in its uh, there there are three basic ways to to serve it. Um, dry, which you know says what it says, but it's not completely dry because the meat. I, I should go through the process of how it's how it's made briefly, but sure. Um, the um even the dry version is is fairly wet the the basic um, again there are a lot of variants but the basic way uh, of doing it is to take a large top or bottom round cut trim some of the fat off um depending on taste you know and you can trim it all off or leave leave a fair amount on typically uh, and i've sort of experimented taking um, cups of of the gravy from uh, some beef stands and and uh, refrigerating them and, and there's a fair amount of fat in the final in the final uh, production. Um, but anyway, you take this piece of meat, you dry season it, salt, pepper, and other things, and that varies from cook to cook. But typically, a lot of commercial places certainly use powdered, you know, dry onion and dry garlic. Um, Home cooks, maybe less so. Um, uh, and uh, oregano is is very often in there. Uh, pretty much universal, I'd say, at this point. And then you can uh, brown the meat in a pan and um, then add liquid to that pan, seasoned liquid, and put it in the oven for roasting for a long time, a couple, three, four hours, whatever, depending on the size of the meat and, and, uh, you know, the tastes of the, of the cook, the liquid can be broth, um, uh, or it can be just seasoned water. Um, some people put in bouillon cubes into water or even into broth to intensify the beef flavor. Uh, and again, the seasoning, the typical seasoning, salt, pepper, um, dried oregano, very often nowadays also dry basil, um, uh, and uh, chili pepper, I'd say in the commercial context, always, um, you know, pepperoncino, mm-hmm. uh, ground up f- flakes. 
Um, but you can also add um, onion, I mean, real onion as opposed to powdered, um, um, garlic, cloves, whole, you know, maybe in the skin. Um, and then there are further optional things. Some people add marjoram, some people add um, rosemary. Uh, uh, and uh, at least one place you adds the so-called uh, sweet spices, which I think we'll be coming back to yeah. um, a little further on. Um, so having done all that, you roast the meat. And then in the essential stages, you take the meat out and you chill it. And you uh, also should chill the gravy so that you can skim off some of the fat so it's not extremely fatty. Um and the reason for chilling um, the beef, um, typically, you know, in a, in a refrigerated uh, space, uh, is so that you can slice it um, uh, very, very thin. And um, then for serving, um, you take the gravy and heat it up, and you take the thinly sliced beef and you place it in this gravy bath, and you heat it up in the bath. Now, uh, in the sometimes it gets left in the bath a long time. I think that's not considered really optimal. That um, uh, optimal would be to just let it really reheat thoroughly. Then you either spoon gravy onto the bread or not, depending uh, on taste. Uh, put the put the meat in the in the bread and you know then there are further things you can add but that's the basic uh that's the basic preparation of the of the meat so it's pretty simple but it's time consuming right and a little word about the bread that's a big part of it too right uh, the, the bread is very interesting and i i was fortunate enough uh oh about um i don't know maybe 17 years ago or so um to uh uh, become friends with um, uh, one of the last, maybe really the last of the neighborhood bakeries in the Taylor Street neighborhood. Um, it was called the Italian Superior Baker Bakery, and um, the head baker there was uh, named Frank Macy, as they said, Massey. Um, and uh, so I got to learn all about. Uh, um, uh, making bread uh, in 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 Frank's uh, in Frank's fashion, and, and not just bread, but uh, frizzel, uh, various kinds of bread, also bakery style pizza, um, uh, taral, um, all sorts of very typically Southern Italian um, bakery products. Um, and one of the kinds of bread he made uh, was made with the same dough, but then it was treated different as far as um, proof, proofing times and, and how the, the dough was handled. But uh, so in addition to sort of uh, usual, you know, uh, um, pagnotte and the round kind and um, filone, the kind of longer, elongated uh, shapes of bread, he also made these long loaves. Um, which I, I think around America, these are generally called Italian bread. Um, but it, among Chicago's Italian community and, and, and the, definitely among the bakers, it was known as uh, French bread. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and these ha were not baked all that dark. Um, the, the, the crust was thin and the crumb was very soft, is very soft. These are still made. Um, and um, a really excellent, uh, uh, an, an excellent sort of bread for sandwiches in general, um, for people, you know, with uh, tooth issues uh, and gum issues, uh, very an easy uh, bread to eat. Um, <laughs> you can mash well, the, the, the innards all together in this nice bread that's soft, yet it has a little bit of crumb, you know, a little crust. And, yeah, uh, but that, I think that's a that's a factor in 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 the overall uh, picture of this of this dish. Um, but anyway, this it, it's an interesting form of bread, and the, the name that here the bakers called uh, uh, French bread. I, I think it goes back to a kind of bread in Naples, paladon, uh, uh, hmm. um, that was a, a you know a sort of filone, elongated. Um, um, but it, it definitely had associations with the French, and uh, I, that word was used as an insult by after the um, uh, after the conquest of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies by the North. You know, there were still royalists around, people who supported the Bourbon mo uh, uh, monarchy, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they were referred to uh, insultingly, jocularly, as Baladona. Um So this this French association. Uh, makes me wonder if um, uh, uh, this this was a Neapolitan take on, you know, sort of the, the French baguette. And, uh, you know, these connections between Naples and France are historically strong and old. There's an intervening period of Catalan and then Spanish domination of, of, of the kingdom of, of uh, one or two Sicilies, right. uh, the kingdom of Naples. Um, but you know, it's uh, the the, Bur the Bourbons return in the mid 18th century, and then with the Napoleonic interlude, uh, come back in uh, 1815 or so, and uh, are, are in charge own um, the kingdom of the two Sicilies up until 1860 when they're you know conquered. Um, but there's also in the Middle Ages there was a very close connection between. Naples and uh, France, and uh, uh, within that, uh, especially Provence, um, when when uh, the kingdom was ruled by the Angevins, um, so twelve sixty six to fourteen forty ish. Um, so uh, within the culinary makeup of Naples, uh, particularly in the city, and obviously particularly. Uh, at the elite level, there are French influences, and 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 you know Naples gives things back to to France as well, um, and and then there's trickle down, and, and and this form of bread, I wonder whether it is really a Neapolitan take on 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 a French style of bread. Mm, yeah, and the fact that it um, that it has continued to persist the same type of bread, but you mention Frank Massey and and his bakery. And then you you know mentioned Southern Italian all the time. What that's what we did not establish that it really is uh, this sandwich is a, a specialty of um, immigrants from Southern Italy, Naples in particular, can and one particular area. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about where the sandwich, how how the sandwich, no, not the beef and all, but the sandwich itself originate, when and how? And you mentioned Taylor Street and talk about Taylor Street. 
Yeah, maybe I'll just start and say something about Taylor Street. Sure. Um, Chicago had many um, Italian neighborhoods, many. Um, there was a small Venetian one down uh, workers who made the Pullman, uh, the cars for the Pullman company. Uh, there was a little Tuscan Piemontese neighborhood not too far from here. Um, there were a couple of um, predominantly Sicilian neighborhoods. Um, uh, but Taylor Street um, was also had a mixed population from Italy, but it was culturally predominated by Neapolitans. I, I think that's quite fair to say. Uh, the neighborhood started out at the southern end of the loop near the Dearborn train station. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a real slum. It was really dangerous, uh, nasty place. Uh, the main Italian group there was from, not from Naples itself, but from uh, uh, Ricciliano and places around there, which is down in the province of Salerno. Now, uh, uh, the edge of Lucania, really. Um, but um, this would be back in the, what, 1880s, 1890s. Um, but that's precisely when immigration from Italy picked up. And among those who came to, uh, to this neighborhood as it expanded westward uh, along Taylor Street, um, uh, there was a strong contingent of people from Naples and uh, in, in general, so the metropolitan area of Naples including the city, but also a very strong contingent from the zone just north of uh, Vesuvius. Um, and the town of Acerra um, it was the home of many. So chain migration. Frank the Baker, his family was from a town called San Vitaliano, which is also just uh, immediately north of Vesuvius, um, about halfway between Acerra and Nola. Um, and um, his family, they, they came in the 1920s, actually started in New York. They abandoned New York and uh, came to Chicago and opened their bakery in, I think it was uh, 1926. Um, so um, Taylor Street um, was very much a working class Italian neighborhood with other groups present, especially at uh, in the 20s and 30s, I think a large uh, uh, subgroup of Mexicans uh, from northern Mexico, especially, uh, or the southern part of the U.S., so Norteños. Um, uh, there's some Poles, some Irish, not many. They mostly moved out as the Italians expanded. Uh, and the the on the east side of the neighborhood, and you have to th imagine, this is a true generally with the Italian neighborhoods in Chicago. As they expanded, they sort of picked a main street and, and clung to it mm -hmm. and expanded westward along it. And Taylor Street, it was always a few blocks to the north and south and just kept going west and west and west. Um, the same thing happened on Grand Avenue, for those who know Chicago. Grand Avenue takes a goes east west, but then takes a turn to the northwest. They followed that all the way out into the suburbs. In the case of Grand, anyway, this strange pattern of uh, of migration. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, there's nothing like that in the New York area that I know of. Uh, um, 
so. Um, so um, by, let's say, 1930 to 40, uh, you had a, uh, a, a strongly, not 100%, Italian neighborhood with a culturally predominant, I don't know numerically, I don't know if we have numbers on this, I've tried to find, get more details, but culturally, there's no question, the Neapolitans and Aceresi were particularly, you know, culturally influ- influential. Hmm. Um, Is there, but you mentioned um, they worked, you know, the, there was the Pullman, building the Pullman cars and all that. Was, is there any veracity to the um, claim that a lot of them worked in the the stockyards and they got discount cuts of beef? Is there any truth in that? Are that those are, I'm not sure that that's, you know. Uh, that, 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 there's probably some truth to that. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know it. I don't have documentation for it. Just, But uh, working in the stockyards was a, an entry, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't available uh, – uh, line of work, and mm-hmm. and still, I think you know Mexican um, immigrants uh, continue in that. They're very, uh, you know, they're, they're the much of the workforce in the in the commercial uh, butcher places in Chicago. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know that that's a crucial factor in um, in uh, the development of uh, Italian beef as a as a particularly popular thing in Chicago, but it could well be. Yeah. Um, and I mean, then, and then because these are cuts of meat that, you know, weren't the best cuts of meat and they have to cook a long time to break down all that, uh, you know, that connective tissue and then. Exactly. Know, exactly. I, the, the working class people of, of Taylor Street back in the 1920s and 30s say uh, they surely would not be buying you know, filet and strip steaks and, and such. Uh, that's just doesn't, doesn't fit economically, I don't think. Yeah. Is there any documentation as to what the first Italian beef stand, you know, sandwich shop was in that area? Uh, it's disputed. Um, uh, the, uh, there are uh, multiple... Uh, claimants, <laughs> um, uh, Al's Beef on Taylor Street claims to be the first. Um, Johnny's Beef, which uh, th- these Johnny's and Al's are very highly regarded. I mean, people who are serious, uh, seriously into Chicago foods, um, I think most would agree that those are certainly among the top. I could stand by Al's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, so, uh, now, uh, Johnny's is now in Elmwood Park, I think. So a suburb, a near suburb to the West. Uh, but the family started, uh, on Taylor street. Hmm. Um, and then Scala's beef, Scala's, they, they, they don't have a, a beef stand, but they make beef for other people. Um, and you know, so sort of lesser beef stands get their beef already, um, at least partially seasoned, roasted, and sliced, and then you know just compose the sandwiches on site. So um, it goes with the, saying. So it goes with saying that these shops started popping up all over the place. There, there are a lot. There are a yeah. lot, and, and <laughs> there are beef stands, and then there, there are lots of places that serve beef that you couldn't really call them a beef stand. Say Portillo's is a famous local chain. 
mm, and yeah. very popular. And they, you know, but they sell hamburgers and, you know, I don't know, probably fried chicken and, of course, Chicago hot dogs. And um, it's much more of a sort of restaurant kind of a thing. So uh, other than the – oh, wait, oh wait, I know what I wanted you to – you were going to tell us the different – ways the different methods of, of that their sandwiches are prepared and how one can order it that's what i yeah. wanted to know before we go to a break yeah i'm gonna i want to know about that my mouth is watering by the way okay yeah the uh there are three basic ways to order a sandwich three styles dry wet and dipped dry the meat is taken out of the uh, out of the gravy bath and um Drained, you know, you just hold it up for, for a moment and let the much of the liquid run out and put it in the sandwich. And now there's still going to be a fair amount of residual gravy. And uh, so it's, but it, it keeps its form. The bread doesn't, you know, become totally mushy. Um, then the wet preparation, you take some gravy, put it on the bread. Um, th this is that, that, that so-called French bread, um, uh, sliced book style, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you put a little spoon of gravy on there. You put the, the beef on the sandwich and maybe a little more gravy on top. And then the dips, which is my preference. Um, <laughs> got to go the whole way. Come on. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You take the whole sandwich, you put the meat in the bread. And then you, with tongs, you take the whole sandwich and dunk it into the baby ba uh, gravy bath. Um, so it's utterly soaked and full of of gravy. And then this immediately gets wrapped up in, uh, you know, sort of wax paper. And one, two, three, four, maybe four, five uh, 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 sheets of of wax paper to to keep it under control. Um, and in that case now, the, the, the dip sandwich, the bread really does start to lose uh, its, uh, its solid character. Yeah. So, um, uh, but the paper then, you know, it holds in the, war the, the warmth and the, and the gravy. So the bread really gets wet if there's a delay in, in between getting the sandwich and eating it. Um, but you can then sort of peel down the wax paper and kind of help... Uh, use the wax paper to help eat the sandwich, and, kind of holding it together. And don't wear your best shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't wear yeah. your best shirt. Uh, um, and I know there are a lot of different toppings, but in you know, uh, we do have to go to a break. So, in, uh, but what's the most popular topping before we before we go to the break? Well, there are two things: sweet peppers, which are just roasted or fried, uh, usually green, sometimes red peppers, sometimes with or without onion. That's one. And uh, uh, hot uh, refers to jard uh, the Chicago version of jardiniere, which is uh, pickled vegetables, which are minced up and in Chicago uh, typically include hot uh, green peppers or, mm. well, they can be red peppers. Um, so it can be quite spicy. It's usually sold, uh, you know, by heat level. And those are packed in, in olive oil or well, nowadays some other oil um, and jarred. Mm -hmm. So the, so the, so you, when you get jardinera on your sandwich, uh, it comes with a certain amount of uh, spicy olive oil as well. 
All right, we're going to talk about the, more about the meat and how how this these this community how it all started, um, and yeah, we're speaking about celebrations and weddings. Uh, so stay tuned. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with Anthony Buccini talking about Italian beef. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, we're back, and we are talking about Italian beef, that iconic sandwich of Chicago. So whether you take yours dry, wet, or dipped, um, you're sure to enjoy this, this, as I said, messy, delicious thing on wax paper. What about a knife and fork? Hmm. Uh, Anthony, what, um, what I'd like for you to talk to us about is, is the, um, some of the traditional, uh, history that where this, before the sandwich stands developed, these sandwiches and this, you know, this meat was being prepared for other reasons. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, the sandwich stands, the uh, beef stands, um, it, it, they're uh, the oldest of them, uh, you know, claim to have uh, come into existence just shortly before World War II. And there are, you know, multiple claims to being the first. Um, it, the, the sandwich stands, the beef stands really take off after the war and start to spread out of the neighborhood, part of a more general um, socio ethno economic uh, um post-war um, development. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the earliest, these, these are all anecdotal, but the earliest um, uh, stories about Italian beef link it to um, weddings. And these uh, have a particular name, this sort of wedding, um, the peanut wedding. And um, might be folk etymology, but it's said nowadays that, oh, well, they served roasted peanuts. I'm not sure. That could be true. Uh, I think peanut here may be also or you know, primarily referred to the humbleness of this wedding. It's an Italian working class um, wedding in uh, a, you know Taylor Street neighborhood. I'm not sure if there were peanut weddings in other neighborhoods. Um, and the main food served at these 
was uh, roasted beef <laughs> placed into uh, uh, pieces of bread, sliced book style, um, and uh, served with gravy, you know, dipped in gravy or whatever. Um, early takeout food. <laughs> well, uh, early sort of self-catering. Yeah. Because these yeah. peanut weddings, the you know, this being a, a, a poor neighborhood, um, this was a way to have a big celebration, um, uh, lots of people getting substantial food, um, and, uh, 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 and, uh, hmm. uh, you know, one aspect of this is that um, eating a large, a large portion of meat was not uh, something that Italian-Americans, almost all primarily Southern Italian in origin, typically did. Right. Um, so but that's what boggled uh, my mind. How did, how, what was the connection there? I mean, you know, big chunks of meat were not common. It was, you know. Absolutely. And, and the local uh, Italian-Americans of Taylor Street themselves are aware of this and kind of think it's an odd dish. But um, if, uh, well, I, I, I want to bring in the, the bakery, uh, you know, and, and, and Frank there uh, uh, as well here. Um, now, the, the beef would be prepared um, by families for the, for the celebration. And, um, uh, you know, this is sort of typically Italian-American, too, that you sort of don't trust other people cooking things. <laughs> you know, Italian-Americans were notoriously not inclined to go to restaurants. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of restaurant Italian-American food is, is really something uh, kind of alien to me growing up as an Italian-American in a very kind of traditional uh, family. We, you know, most of these restaurant dishes were just odd to us. Um, but anyway, um, so you would prepare the beef at home. But if it was a really big party, and this is something I learned from Frank Macy of Italian Superior Bakery, that uh, when he was a kid working in the bakery, they would uh, routinely um, be asked to bake to roast the meat in their big oven. So families would bring the meat to the bakery and they would roast the meat in the bakery and then uh, take the meat off to the site of the celebration with a rented space in the basement of the church or, or if it was a big house, they could do it in their house. And the bakery would make money on, you know, the roasting of the meat, but then also sell lots and lots of these loaves of French bread. <laughs> I knew and, a party was coming up. <laughs> yeah. So, so this, so this is, uh, this is something that uh, isn't generally known. Now people do occasionally talk about the peanut weddings as an early anecdotal uh, attestation of Italian, Italian beef uh, avant la lettre. But, um, uh, but this, you know, ex extends uh, Italian beef history back a bit um, to the 30s um, and, uh, and, and points to something that is generally lost on most people who talk about Italian beef, which is that though Italian beef today is uh, primarily a fast food, that's how most people encounter it, Italian beef is still, to this day, a celebratory food. And I'll, I'll give you some, uh, some examples. For example, somebody has their, their, their child has, uh, makes their um, first communion, and you have a big party with family and close friends. 
all right, well, you, you know, you, there are various foods you could serve. But in Chicago, especially Tavern Street, one option would be um, to do Italian beef. And you could make it at home or you can get it from um, a beef stand. And you just put in an order and you basically have it catered. You get the beef and the gravy and the bread and the jardinera and the roasted peppers. Um, and you assemble the sandwiches. Uh, you heat things up and assemble the sandwiches at the right time. Mm -hmm. Even in the context of uh, some Mexican neighbors uh, of ours, uh, we've been invited a number of times to their Christmas tamalada, uh, you know, tamale party. And at the tamale party, so a big family gathering with some friends, close friends, um, you know, the point of the party is to make the tamales, and that takes a while. So just for those who are hungry before, and there's Italian beef. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from you know, yeah. so it, it still is very much a celebratory dish in in certain contexts. Yeah, I mean, humble and as that, it is, it's 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 imbued with all this this you know tradition and feeling. It's it's interesting. Yeah, and 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 that you know goes back to this time when it was a dish uh, noble enough. It's, you know, I don't know if that's a stretch, but noble enough to be served at a wedding. Mm -hmm. um, and then and that that makes the connection then. I think to Italy. Uh, well, and this aspect of using uh, you know the bakery oven as a communal oven, oh my God, that goes back to you know ancient Roman days, I and mean, that's and pre and before that. I mean, you know, communal Abs ovens. You know, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, in 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 a in a crowded city like Naples, I, I doubt. Um, you know, as you go down the social scale at the lower levels, cooking facilities would be extremely limited. Mm -hmm um perhaps wanting altogether and uh, naples and this is true you know uh grosso modo for the rest of southern italy but uh let's stick to naples here um you know this very developed culture of street food and not just we're not talking about you know just you know little fried things and sandwiches and that sort of thing but um street food as in uh, a dish of pasta with uh grated pecorino on it um, uh, or tomato sauce and, and, and pecorino or uh, in the meat world, because again, meat was expensive and the lower classes ate only, you know, uh, the so-called variety cuts um, for the most part on a, you know, normal basis. So uh, in, in, in Naples, there were places that sold zufrit, the famous, uh, you know, pig pluck stew, spicy, intense flavors that that made it over to America, too. As a kid, right. uh, I, I ate sufrit. Um, uh, and carne cotta. And carne cotta would be, um, they'd have these big cauldrons and boil up basically bits of whatever bits of a slaughtered um, uh, bovine um, there were would get boiled up, tripe feet um um uh there would be some muscle meat a little bit you know scraps um and you'd be served that um or you could just get a bowl of the broth the gravy um so th this is uh you know an old tradition uh and for baking yes indeed baking uh, you know most places didn't have ovens certainly most poor contadini yeah. didn't have you know ovens 
um, you mentioned that we would come back to the sweet spices, something that may have fallen off um, now and replaced with, you know, dried oregano or, you know, other spices. But in the original um, cooking of a big, like for stufato in, in Italy, for the big, um, you know, beef stews and, and even when they would cook their, uh, the other dishes um, that use a, a a variety cut of beef that had to be cooked a long time. The ancient sweet spices were added often. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, they, uh, you know, spices in general, uh, they're in Europe, they're imported, they're expensive. So this would not, they would not be part of um, the usual cookery, the day-to-day quotidian cookery of the uh, lower classes. And, you know, only as you go up the social scale would they become common and prevalent. But uh, in, a, in a given place, there's always some interaction between the elite and the non-elite. And these very often focus on, on, on uh, ce- celebrations um, in, and also solemn occasions. Um, so the sort of poor food of s- solemn occasions will will find representation in the cuisine of the elite. Uh, the food of grand celebrations of of happy um, uh, festive occasions um, generally trickles down from above. So uh, while uh, a uh, a nobleman living in Naples, for him it might him or her, it might not be uh, anything noteworthy to have on a Tuesday uh, a piece of beef cooked in uh, in gravy with spices in it. But for somebody poor, A, the meat is itself something that you rarely eat. It's got to be a big occasion to, to lay out the money to buy a chunk of meat. Um, and B, the spices. This is something special. Um, and um, I, I think that's the origins of, well, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> that's the origins of, of uh, ultimately of Italian beef. Hmm. Um, that, and, and indeed, it's a combination. There's only, to my knowledge, there's only one place that still does this. Maybe there, there's one or two others. But Al's Beef on Taylor Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people dislike their beef uh, because of this. Um, but they include... Um, it's a secret, you know, a business secret. They don't give away their, their seasoning, but, um, uh, I believe they put cloves, cinnamon, perhaps nutmeg as well. And of course there's always black pepper, but, um, when you pick up, uh, the, the gravy or a sandwich from Al's, I, I can smell the cloves mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's different than allspice. A lot of people think, I uh, think maybe it's allspice, but of course allspice gets that name because the, you know, the, the single allspice spice from Jamaica um, has that, that uh, effect of the combination of cloves, uh, cinnamon, nutmeg, and pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Al's is very distinctive in this, but I think very archaic. Yeah, well, um, definitely, you know, harks back to you know early Roman recipes that that um, where everything was you know heavily spiced with those very fragrant spices. Well, to show your wealth, if you 
about it, right? Yeah, and, and you know, this is uh, we're talking here in a specific context of Naples, and there's no reason, you know, this neighborhood um, did have people from Calabria and Basilicata and so on, mm-hmm. um, from southern Lazio. Although so, what is now southern Lazio was was Campania once upon a time. Right. Um, well, uh, but uh, but you know, you think of a dish like uh, the Garofalato di Manzo in, in Rome, where it's a, a it's a beef stew, but very strongly spiced with cloves. Or there's a beautiful uh, uh, sauce made with minced pork, not ground pork, but minced pork from Calabria um, with tomatoes and um, so on. But it's um, seasoned heavily with fennel seed. Oh, fennel seed sometimes goes into Italian beef too. Um, fennel seed and, uh, and cloves again. Mm-hmm. And of course, nutmeg to this day, that's the one that has survived most in uh, Italian cookery as a, you know, and it's, it's, it, it's pervasive. Uh, I know on my, in my kitchen, uh, you know, on the, on the counter next to the olive oil and the, and the little basket with, uh, with garlic and, and all that, I, I always have a bottle full of, you know, nutmeg because I have to use it in so many traditional right. dishes. I could tell immediately, you know, in, in Italy when I'm at a restaurant, I could tell when they put the nutmeg in a tomato sauce. I mean, that because you, you know, you, that comes up loud and clear. I mean, not, not loud, yeah. subtly, but, but you know, yeah, or, you know, chicken soup and of course meatballs, you know, they have to have nutmeg. It's one of the well, you have helped. There's so much more information we could go into and, 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 you know, go back to, you know, older, cookbooks and chefs and things. and But you have answered the question to me that was always boggling my mind is, why is this Italian? And and here we see that this, you know, the history of this Italian beef really is, as you just mentioned, it, it has its sociocultural place in, in the cooking of back in Naples. And they, they brought it and brought these iconic sandwiches. So if you haven't had one yet and you're traveling in the Chicago area, I know there are Italian beef places that have spread outside of Chicago, certainly. And you can, if you look, you can find them in a lot of different towns, but rarely, you know, rarely. Um, and it's just not like going to the place where it originated and having it there. Thank you so much, Anthony. That was that was really a great insight into this the whole period of immigration and, and that cooking. And, and um, it is lunchtime and I can hear my stomach grumbling. I say that often because I always record at lunchtime, it seems. Um, this is terrific. And I thank you so much. And I look forward to more of your deep dives into some of the food ways and, and um, iconic dishes. So thank well, my you. Pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. And Remember to join as a member the Heritage Radio Network because we are a listener-sponsored radio network. So if you go to our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and see the heart in the upper right-hand corner, just click on it, and you can donate to become a member or just give a donation, whichever you want. It's whatever you choose, and we appreciate it all. Thank you so much for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe 